there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Ronald Reagan won 49 out of 50 states and basically annihilated Walter Mondale as he was re-elected for a second term as president. Also in Washington, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was finally completed. Fact-based TV movies were huge, with Fatal Vision telling the story of the Jeffrey McDonald murders, The Burning Bag giving Farrah Fawcett some righteous revenge, and the Teresa Saldana story giving victims of violent attacks a voice. Mr. Rogers donated a sweater to the Smithsonian. Guy LaFleur retired. SETI was founded to find proof of extraterrestrial life, and McDonald's made its 50 billionth hamburger. And finally, as a reminder that things do not have to be awful, as the Ethiopian famine crisis heated up, the Soviet Union actually helped deliver American wheat to the starving, because the world's only ugly if we decide it is. That's just as true now as it was in November of 1984. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWeenie, and as I look out the window right now, there's a beautiful sunset behind the Nakatomi Plaza, and I am excited to record a brand new 80s all over with my co-host scott weinberg what's up scott hi drew welcome back to our podcast and this was a very interesting month full of lots of movies and a couple of them are even good i feel like what's happening right now with the last like four months of 1984 there is so much packed in and it covers so much ground that every episode right now is like this crazy grab bag of 40 different tones in 20 movies They're shuffling the deck so that now we know when the four quadrants of the year are. You know, summer is for kids and family. Late year is for adults and Oscar-type movies. And so when people break that, it gets weirder because you notice it. Drew did not know that I was going to bring this up, but we got a re-release. In November of 1984, we got a re-release of Bob Clark's A Christmas Story. This was where the sort of rehab began because this was that moment where MGM kind of was betting that people were going to start to really go back and fall for the. And I love that very quickly people started to really catch on to how special that film was. And now a new episode of dry (laughs) French drama that Scott couldn't get into starring Drew McQueenie as he discusses the film, a Sunday in the country. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I like this one a lot. Uh, Bertrand Tavernier, 
I believe is how you say his last name, uh, directed this one. And this is a movie for old ass men. And it is an old ass man movie about an old ass man. And as an old ass man, I enjoyed it. This is set right at the turn of the century, the last century. Uh, A painter who lives in the countryside. Some of his children are married. Some of them are not. Some of them have grandchildren for him. Some of them don't. And it's just about one long day as his family in waves comes to see him in the countryside. The entire film is just family dynamics. Why one sibling is closer to dad than this one, or why this sibling comes to see him all the time and this one never does, or why this person is sad about what this person said and this person can't please that person. Yeah, it's a lot of family politics, and and a lot of it I I found familiar, but not all that compelling. I love the fact that it's a painterly film about a painter. How these people dress and how they look is as much a part of what they are and who their character is as what they say. I think it's a painter's movie, and it's very visually lush. I think it's a very pretty film. It's a very quiet film. It is not a film about time healing things. It's more about how things get fossilized. Hurts just become old hurts. They don't become better. It's not push button at all. I'll give no. it that. And, and I do think it is a very good film. It's gorgeous to look at. The performances are great. I just found myself within 45 minutes just asking, get to the point. And now we move to a very important segment. The Ted Wass Appreciation Corner. <laughs> when Drew and I sit down and discuss the films of Ted Wass, he dominated Curse of the Pink Panther. Absolutely devastated. Sheena. Ruined it. Just erected. Just tore it up. He was brought in to prop up the floundering Oh God series, and he promptly killed it. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time ever, George Burns stars with George Burns. God? Guess again. Oh God, you devil. Faded PG. Opens November 9th. What genre is this? Because if you say comedy, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Except for George Burns' little rejoinders, I don't even see what's attempting to be funny. There's a weird thing it does. Ted Wass is a floundering musician who makes a wish that he could sell his soul for stardom, and then the devil appears, does the deal with him, and he immediately then takes the identity of an already existing rock star, and then that guy goes and lives in his life. Not only does it add nothing to the film, it's weirdly complicated and goes nowhere, so it doesn't pay off in any interesting way. And his girlfriend, who is, of course, oh, no, I need to get back to her because true love is more important than stardom, is just kind of out there with some other dude for six months while the movie happens. It's the weirdest setup. I don't understand why this movie was even made. Was Oh God Book 2 a big hit? I think they both must have made decent coin. And the thing that the press notes kept emphasizing was the technical breakthrough of the twin shots. Oy, 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 oy. Now, I'll say this. Now, I'm obsessed with twin stuff. And when we get to Back to the Future 2, you may have to just walk out of the room for a little while and let me nerd the fuck out. Yeah, because yeah, I'm literally just like. George Burns on the the left of the screen, George Burns on the right of the screen. Except in one shot. There's one shot in this thing that I had to play back two or three times because I still don't exactly know how they did it. And I'll give him this. It's the last shot in the thing, and Burns throws chips to himself, catches the chips, and then crosses, breaks frame. And I guarantee there's like nine paragraphs in the press notes about that one shot as if that then justifies 
two and a half hours of insane boredom. Also, this is the beginning of a trend this week. This is our first fake rock star alert. Bobby, I don't know what cue we're going to use here. Maybe it's Eddie and the Cruisers. Maybe it's something else. But we have about 37 fake rock stars this week, and they need a theme song. Was. I don't understand how anybody thinks that what we see Ted Wass do in this would translate to superstardom in any way. So, no, no, I reject you. Drew, in 1989, the brilliant sages called Millie and Vanilli told us to blame it on the rain. But in 1984, those of us who were paying attention to terrible movies on HBO knew to He's the star of the world's greatest rock and roll band. Suddenly, he must become a father to the son he doesn't know. The music. The magic. The victory. Now, you can blame it on the night. Here we go again. Another fake rock star. Big fake rock star. Fake rock. This movie has a story credit attributed to one Mick Jagger. (laughs) The idea that this story is attributed to Mick Jagger makes me think, wait, is Mick Jagger a giant fucking douchebag? Because this movie is about a giant douchebag rock star who has a kid who he utterly abandons and ignores and then brings on tour with him. And pretty much mistreats and destroys as a result of his time. And then several montages collide. This movie might have the most montages outside of Rocky Four. We're beginning to really get into that mode now where we're in the mid 80s. MTV has really aggressively started to get its fingers into the language of film and montage has taken over. And because this is set in the world of rock and roll, theoretically, It almost has permission to use that MTV, everything's advanced by a song. I hate all the music in this film. Nick Mancuso is such an unlikable lead. And so at no point in this movie do I want the child to be in his care, much less reconcile with him or forgive him for the neglect and abandonment. And the guy is just a dick for the entire film. In theory, we're supposed to care. But we don't at all. So (laughs) let's just move on. Drew, now we are going to switch over to a broad comedy that in my early days, if you would ask me at a certain point when I was 16 or 17, what's the worst movie I ever saw? I might have mentioned this movie. I like it a bit more now. Let us discuss Night Patrol. These are the proud members of a special task force. You gotta be kidding. Serving the public. Just keep your eyes open for anything suspicious. And commanding respect. The true team players. Forging forward. Ouch. With only one thing on their mind. Yeah, like what? Booze and cheap sex. Night Patrol. They keep America safe. Barely. Rated R. I've said in the past, every movie is somebody's favorite movie. I went to high school with a kid whose favorite movie was Night Patrol. This kid, by the way, one of the best students I've ever met, has gone on to a terrific career. This guy grew up to found the Fire Festival. Yeah, but, 
But Night Patrol was his North Star. The strangest part of it was this was a movie that I barely even knew existed when it came out. And because he had taped it off of Cinemax one night, he recited lines from it. So Night Patrol, whether I like it or not, I kind of have Night Patrol in my head and had it in my head for years before I went back and saw it again for us. You know, when you first start getting like your critical faculties around 14 or 15, uh, sometimes you get like really angry about something you hate. And for me, this was not only a blatant ripoff of Police Academy. How dare you? And I for a few months there, I would have called this my least favorite movie in the world. It was produced as the unknown comic movie. The movie was clearly written and performed by like. Catskill, Borscht Belt, sticky, sticky comedians, because a lot of the jokes in this movie are like very old one-liners. I think it really kind of runs out of steam halfway through. But if you want to see like a smuttier version of Police Academy, you could do worse. I think Jackie Kong, who I am really only getting to know now through our podcast, I think Jackie Kong is, for better or for worse, somebody who has an actual signature. I'm still not a fan of Night Patrol, but... She knows what movie she's making and what world she's in. So her whole world is completely bananas from the very beginning and anything can happen and reality doesn't matter. And because she she sets that tone, she can get away with it throughout the film. We've seen a lot of wacky comedies and we've talked about the things they do wrong and about and a big part of it is just energy. A lot of them don't have enough energy to keep that going. And whether I'm laughing or not, I will say that Night Patrol seems to, beginning to end, just keep moving. Like, it is constantly throwing shit at you. What I do like is the staccato rapid fire. A lot of the jokes are bad, but at least they're constantly coming. And you're like, that, yep. that's an effort. But then the weird part is when the movie finally lingers on one long joke... It does so in act three and our lead actors are in blackface. And I'm like, cut this, get away, get just make it one joke and move on. It feels very much like a spinoff from the gong show movie because you have JP Morgan and you have Murray Langston in the unknown comic um, doing his unknown comic shtick. And the whole thing throughout the movie is, are they going to unmask the unknown comic? Are they going to, I guess if you saw this movie in a vacuum and you didn't know there was a gong show and you didn't know that the unknown comic had sort of come up on television and afternoon TV and it, you would just think it was something that was made up for this. But it really is the payoff of a long time where they had never shown his face. They had never paid off who he was. And Murray Langston's the star of the film here. So this movie's built around the idea that that reveal meant something. So, you know, it's not a good movie, but it is occasionally a funny, cheap goofball movie. Now, Drew, let us move on to a film. And if you and I rated films on a grading scale like teachers do, what do you think we would give? To give me an F. Well, it's like calling your movie The Turd. You're just begging a critic to take that shot. And and deservedly, it's, it's a terrible film. Why tempt people? This is a very uneventful cheerleader camp sex comedy. And the only thing, the only thing that I could find of any interest in this movie is that it was the debut of screenwriter Jim Hart, who several years later would write Hook, and Contact, and uh, Muppet Treasure Island, and a lot of good movies. You would never believe that anybody who had anything to do with this is going to go on to a career. I, I had never seen frame one of this, and yep. I read the premise, I sit down, and I'm like, okay, is this going to be the dumb, dumb, sexy version of, like, bring it on, the prototypical bring it on? And I thought, that might be interesting. Nope, I was wrong. That goodwill lasted about 45 seconds. It's really dull. 
it makes you sit through so much shoe leather about things that nobody cares about. No one's watching this movie and hoping that there will be a lot of stuff about the politics of cheerleader camp. No one cares. Terrible dance and, and song numbers that like <laughs> there. Ooh, we just filled four minutes. Hooray. We filled four minutes. Now only 80 more is all we need. We can yeah. move right over to another wretched teen sex comedy that Ooh, I had never yep. seen before. Today. Roll right into it. Only this one comes with the added bonus of Drew's favorite. You got the touch. It's the combination of fake rock and Michael Enzo that makes Love Lines so special. What is Love Lines? Drew, I didn't know this movie existed. Nor did I. Brand new to me too, buddy. The VHS cover, I'm like, no. I, it looks like a poster you should know if you see it from far away. You're like, oh yeah, I know that poster. And then you get closer and you go, no. No, I don't. Looks like a really cool retro artist around our age made five VHS covers and put them in with five real ones and said, all right, which are fake? And we'd be like, Love Lines is fake. No, it's real. What? This is a Romeo and Juliet type teen comedy about a battle of the bands where the girl from one school and the guy from another school and then Michael Winslow, who plays like an MC later in the movie, has a bunch of stuff early in the movie that was clearly shot later after Police Academy came out and wedged into the movie to give him more stuff to do. It's a, it's on it's on it's not a movie. It's really not. And I don't like saying that. I'm I actually will reserve that one. My brain was trying to combine atrocious and unwatchable and that's what happened there. It's atrochable. Yeah, it's untrochable. Yes. And it's one of those non-movies where they kept adding elements if we put Michael Winslow in there and he's at this call center and every now and then we cut to him and he says stuff, is that, is, does that make it a movie now? No. What if there's 15 more musical numbers from bands that we'll never hear from again? Is that a movie now? It's like somebody like saw get crazy and said, that's pretty good. Let's do it without comedy. Big rock and love line. Drew, give me an F. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Give me an F. Uh, F. Because you can't spell no affair. Without two F's. May I be excused? Yes. When you clean your plate. Until the age of 16, Charles Cummings... No small affair. Yeah. Charles Cummings led a black and white life. Hi, Charles. How you been? Hey, Chad. Hey, hey. What's the matter? You don't like aggressive women? I have a girl, Chuck. No, thanks. I'm full. Then the perfect woman stepped in front of his lens. I, I never kissed anybody like that before. All he wanted was her picture. What he got was no small affair. This is so great. Rated R. Now playing Check Newspapers for Theaters. This is about the time that I started to going to see everything. Right? You had already been in that phase. But this was around the time that my cousin Brian or my sister or my local pack of wild friends would see just about everything. I went to see No Small Affair. It is a dry, likable adult comedy to a degree about a young boy who is smitten with a much older girl, the 23-year-old Demi Moore. And then he goes about trying to, like, insinuate himself into her life, although it's not as creepy as it sounds. I did not like this movie when I was a kid. I knew that I would like it more because Jerry Schatzberg directed it, and he's a good director, except for we didn't care for his um, misunderstood. Drew, I'm really interested, you know, because you and I talk a lot about, like, the young boy crush on the older woman, and is it gross or tacky <laughs> or... Well, their, their tagline for this is, he's 16, she's 22. Uh, yeah. Okay, 
I, I watched it again, I and I had not seen it in a long time. And I think John Cryer has this... It's the same thing that uh, young Anthony Michael Hall had, which is unflappable confidence. They have a persona that they have already kind of nailed down and that they are very, very good at projecting. And I, John Cryer is so good at playing uncomfortable in his skin, but it's so clearly his act. I mean, he is terrific in this. I'm not as in love with the script. I think the script doesn't really know how to get everywhere it's going. It's really mature in some moments. And then there's like this long sequence with the hooker comes into his room to seduce him. And that's, and that's played like Porky's two level and it's not funny, but then the movie goes right back into some other stuff. That's honest and sincere. Schatzberg, I think, Gets in the ballpark. I think he almost gets the movie right. I do think that it really loses steam towards the end and then starts to kind of flounder. And to talk about a movie that lives or dies by its ending, I thought if you had ended this movie slightly differently, I'd have been like, wow, now there's a good message. That's, but it ends in a very conventional way that I don't think is very interesting. It's from a real place. And I think that's what they are trying to write is that this is a sweet kid who this is the first time he's felt this way about anybody. And he goes too far. That I think is the strongest stuff in the movie and the stuff I identify with at their very best. What these movies can do is humanize experiences that are uncomfortable and that are awkward and that uh, make us feel terrible about ourselves and make us realize that we've all, especially in those moments, been vulnerable and and made ourselves look stupid and done things we shouldn't have. And it's finding that way to do that without making the characters awful people. And it's a really hard thing to write. And there's moments in this that get get that stuff right. So uh, There's some really good supporting performances in this movie as well. This was, we should note, the feature film debut of not only John Cryer, but I believe Tim Robbins and Jennifer Tilly. This is another fake rock movie for this week. And I am baffled by the music here because it's such a strange choice they make towards the end of the film that her career suddenly kicks into overdrive by doing something that as they show us on screen i would not pay money for so let's talk real quick about her performance because this was right before she blew up i think she's rather good in this i think she's okay my problems with demi Moore were much more pronounced at the beginning of her career And I think she eventually turned into a terrific actor and was more than equal to material she was getting. But I don't think she was there yet. And I think that happened to a lot of young actors. It happened to Rob Lowe. It happened to there's a lot of people who, because they were pretty, they were given the leads and they just aren't lead material. They're not interesting people yet. They're so unfocused and soft and young and there's no weight to her in this movie. So she's supposed to be the older girl who is, she's got all the experience and she's, you know, sort of the unattainable. And I just don't buy the act. What I like about her in this, and then we'll move on is that I think she's very much in her own skin in this movie. And John Cryer is also really good. So, you know, it's nice to see good careers take off. And in some films, Drew, it's kind of a shame to see film careers come to an end. Let us talk briefly about Christy McNichol, in just the way you are. Meet the uncommonly talented. Thank you very much. And totally enchanting. Well, as far as my eyes go, I've only got one, and it's right in the middle of my forehead. But it's big and brown, right? Susan Berlanger. Now, Susan's ready for a little fiction. If you help me with this, I can be like a lot of other people there. As a doctor, I do not really approve of this. But as a Frenchman, I must congratulate you. 
it takes a special kind of courage to be just the way you are. Aside from Little Darlings, I had every other Christy McNichol movie confused as the same film. And that's part of the problem is she never really leaned into an identity on film. And part of it was just the the scripts she picked were awful. And this one. Yeah, I don't think she picked this. This was originally written for Goldie Hawn. Sissy Spacek was cast in this movie. She got pregnant and had to pass on the film. And then eventually it went to Christy McNichol. She hadn't worked in two years since the pirate movie. And this was her comeback. There's a whole other movie at the beginning of this that is a really heavy 1984 film if you're going to do it. She's a professional flautist. She's, uh, you know, living a life that's very quiet and she's kind of hiding from everything. And it's because she's got this leg brace that she has to wear. And so she's not comfortable in her skin. And she is set to marry a friend who is gay. It's a lavender marriage so that he can uh, get ahead and get promoted and that he has a wife to take the functions. And the two of them are 100% in agreement on this. And that's the whole point of the marriage. That's a movie. That's a movie by itself set in the early 80s, especially because he's in that world of high finance business, which was all the Gordon Gecko world at that point. Wow, would that be an interesting film? He leaves the movie 15 minutes in and that's it. As played by Tim Daly, uh, I kept waiting for him to come back. I thought (laughs) that's kind of an interesting subplot. The rest of the subplot in which she puts a cast on her leg and pretends to just have a broken leg as opposed to a physical ailment. Here's a big lie that I have to tell for the whole movie so that at the end of the movie, the person I've fallen in love with, I have to admit a lie to them and then they can not like me for 15 minutes and then we can get together at the very end. Drew, I didn't want to I didn't want to do this on the air, but after all these years, I have something to tell you. Are you not really Scott Weinberg? I'm Christy McNichol. God damn it. I knew it. I love you just the way you are. I wonder if Billy Joel sued the producers of this movie. I don't know what the rules are about using a title like that. There's a lot of familiar faces. Alexandra Paul uh, shows up here as the angry girl who is uh, always getting sort of punished just for being the guy's girlfriend when Christy McNichol showed up. She didn't do anything wrong, but boy, she she gets the shit end of the stick, doesn't she? That happened a lot in 80s movies. There's a crazy early subplot with Robert Carradine, and again, he's in it for 11 minutes and then disappears. Wedged in together, uh, Lance Guest shows up very briefly, a.k.a. The last Starfighter. Yeah, right. I think this was probably on the shelf for a while before it can't got got dropped. Yeah, and for those who don't know who Khaki Hunter is, she is best known, of course, for the Porky's movies. And it feels like this was one of the few cases where I could see one of the cast members, Porky's, make the jump successfully and find a way to kind of have a real studio life. I'm I'm really I'm shocked it didn't happen. Now on unsolved movie mysteries. Drew and Scott want you to know Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep once starred in a romantic drama together. Have you ever seen it? No. Why? I don't know. It's not very good. What's it called? Falling in love. Rizzoli. Yeah, I was the guy that dropped everything and you helped me. Oh, my God. Every once in a while, something special happens between two great stars. Something romantic. Nervous. Yeah, I am nervous. Something exciting. (laughs) Something like falling in love. Just 
I see you. Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep. Falling in love. Yeah, this was supposed to be the kickoff. I don't know if you know this, to a whole franchise of movies they were going to do together. There was another one where they were going to go searching for gold, and it was going to be called Adventure Film. And then there was going to be another one where they went to the moon, and they met Martians, and it was going to be called Outer Space. The sequel to Falling in Love was going to be called, like, Falling in Leaves. And then part three would be, like, Falling in Snow. Talk about an on-the-nose title and a movie that lives down to it. De Niro and Streep are both married. They run into each other at a bookstore. They run into each other several months later on a train. And then they start to think that they have feelings for one another as if maybe fate keeps jamming them together. Um, Director is uh, Ulu Grossbard, who has done many good films. By all accounts, except for the very generic title and uneventful plot, this should be a decent movie, but it just it's like watching a still lake. It's beautiful, but it's nothing's happening. Grossbard was one of those guys who, by all accounts, was very method-driven, really loved method actors, really loved the idea of just building things out over rehearsals and taking his time with them. And so Straight Time, uh, the Dustin Hoffman film of his, was a particular favorite of mine. And I really was excited. I remember when this movie came out, it was right as I was really starting to get into this stuff, and I got my parents to take me to this one. I regretted every minute I spent in that theater because I was 14. As ambitious as I was, this was never going to be my jam at 14. Watching it now at 48, I was right. It's not a very good film. There's not, I don't buy the connection that they have. I don't buy why they decide to fall together. I don't really see that there is any pressure in their marriages that makes it interesting even. It feels to me like a low-key vanity project. Well, what if we put these two powerhouses together and then pull back and let them underplay? And it's not just two powerhouses. Every element of this thing, you've got Michael Christopher writing it. Holy shit. You've got Dave Grusin wrote the score for this thing. Peter Sushitsky shot it. Michael Kahn cut it. It, Spielberg's editor cut this thing. It's got Diane Weist. It's got Harvey Keitel. It's got, I mean, there's nothing about this that is not... Uh, an A-plus pedigree. It's as luxury a pedigree as you get, and yet, just inert. It just is nothing. You watch it, and I my whole takeaway at the end of it was, I don't get why they're together, nor do I get why the ins and outs of their relationship are meant to be interesting. And I'm sorry, but the screenplay, after a long cutaway of an indeterminate amount of time, we discover that, oh, conveniently enough, guess what, Drew? Both marriages have dissolved on their own. I mean, come on. It's also the moment that I really got struck by the fact that some actors can't do everything. De Niro is a guy who is at his least interesting when he is meant to be normal. This it won't be like a painful stop on your Streep slash De Niro checklist, but it won't, you won't remember it in a month. You really right. won't. Now we move to Paul Bartel, the lovable loon who gave us Eating Raul is back with his follow-up, Nancy Allen and David Naughton in the bizarre, but not entirely bad, not for publication. I'm with you. Uh, This premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, so we're starting to get into that era now where the first and second Sundance Film Festival, after being called the U.S. Film Festival, have happened, and at this point, it means nothing because that festival has not asserted itself. So it's just interesting to see what their programming was like in those days. This will be fun. Describe the plot of Not for Publication. A woman who writes a column stumbles across 
a plot, a plot involving her boyfriend, who is the mayor, and sets out to uncover it in the most insane and weird way possible. Better or worse, would you call this than uh, eating roll? Worse. But I think there are elements of it that definitely feel like, oh, yeah, there's the guy who made Eating Raul. Yeah, and, and uh, what I like about Bartel is even in his lesser movies, he wants to be just raucous and slapsticky, mm-hmm. but he's also social commentary, political commentary. He's not afraid to mock certain stereotypes and conventions and uh, cliches. Sometimes he even goes a little too far. Nancy Allen being silly. That's fun. Tons of Nancy Allen being silly and having a lot of fun. And it makes me wish that I had been more familiar with it when we talked to her, because I think she gets to do things here we really didn't get to see from her, including a pretty big musical number that she and Naughton do together. Where the fuck did that come from? Yeah, it's it's out of left field, and it's pretty funny. They have a pretty good time together. And this is a guy who, kind of like Robert Hayes, couldn't really catch a break after the movie that we love him for. And you keep waiting for another movie where they get the same charm. I don't just love American Werewolf because I love the effects and I love John Landis's movie. I love David Naughton. I think he's great. His reactions when he's melting down in American Werewolf make you really ache for him. So I'm glad to see a movie where he gets to be light on his feet and funny. And clearly he and Nancy Allen have some real chemistry starting to happen. There's fun between the two of them. The movie doesn't really get its shit together ever. Like you keep waiting for it to click and really all start working and it ambles it just takes its freaking time not all the jokes land but i had a good time with not for publication i did too drew it is now time to move over to the double feature corner that i'm calling the mighty orphan power rangers two orphan films the first i will bet you $17 trillion, this was made either as a TV pilot or a TV movie, and nobody wanted it, and it was released in theaters very briefly, noteworthy for starring a very young Andrew McCarthy, and nothing else, the Benneker Gang. What the hell is this? Also notable for all King Quapis fans, because... Ken Quapis is a terrific TV director who did about a million episodes of The Office. Oh, whenever I see Ken Quapis, my... Let me see if you have the same first reference I do. What's your first thing you think of? Follow that bird. Of course. And, you know, it's just not a like a bad movie. It's just TV movie about five orphans who yeah. want to stay together and don't want to get fostered or, or adopted, and they take off together. While they're at the orphanage, they kind of give the people who run it a lot of shit. It feels like a spinoff from Eight is Enough. You call it Five is Sufficient. There you go. And then Drew, oh, we have another orphan comedy? Well, this one's more of a comedy, but yeah, it's almost the same plot. A bunch of orphans who want to stay together run away from an orphanage. Uh, The difference is that in this case, they're going after one of them who's already been adopted by Martin Mull and Karen Black. God help you if you know what I'm talking about and have actually seen bad manners. Welcome to Bleeding Heart Orphanage. Before you start checking accounts. They're busting out to break you up. Oh, you kids are so wild. I'm in. Bad Manners, a.k.a. Growing Pains, which honestly, and this is going to sound appealing, but it's not. Animal House, but an orphanage. 
Yeah, and for 12-year-olds. Animal House for 12-year-olds. It is loaded with weird-ass choices. First of which is, this movie has a score by Sparks. Right now, Edgar Wright is in the middle of making a documentary about Sparks because he's the biggest Sparks fan on the planet. And it's strange, man. It is a weird soundtrack for this film. not a good movie it's obnoxious and it barely gives you a respite from the obnoxious well it's the kind of movie where the one black kid in the group is named blackie um i think the martin mulcair and black stuff they play the couple that adopts the one kid out of the group that stuff is interminable i hate every moment in their house i honestly believe growing up i believe martin mole was one of the funniest guys in the universe now that we're kind of doing this show i'm like looking for that evidence boy did he get wedged into some garbage their daughter is kimmy robertson the uh secretary from twin peaks god there's a lot of uh mayhem in this and very little of it is funny jan debont shot the film and just like in roar he almost got a scalp torn off no wait i'm sorry that's not true (laughs) um scott Let's talk about Zombie Island Massacre. In Zombie Island Massacre, you'll witness ancient voodoo ceremonies. And if you're very lucky, and for no extra charge, you might even get to participate in these picturesque rituals. Sample the world-famous Zombie Island cuisine. Cannibalisms. You won't believe your senses when you find out the blood-curdling truth behind Zombie Island Massacre. Zombie Island Massacre. It's a one-way ticket to a fun-filled vacation of terror, torture, and violence. Zombie Island Massacre. Yeah. Um, did you see this one in a theater, Scott? Good God, no. I, I did. I don't know if this even opened in Philly. The, the only interesting thing about this movie, and it's not interesting in a good way, is that instead of ripping off like the then very popular Romero zombies, this goes back to like the old school kind of like voodoo black magic zombies. The reason this got any theatrical play is because there was a congressman who got somewhat disgraced and his wife, Rita Jeanrette, was a little bit notorious and ended up in Playboy. And because she had been in Playboy, she had about 11 minutes where her name was vaguely bankable. This movie exists for one reason, and it is to show her topless. And that's it. That's literally how it was sold. That's the only reason it got any like promotion. That was the selling point of this film. It is a zombie movie with no horror scenes. It is terrible. Oh, my God. And racist. Wildly crazy racist. It was uh, distributed, but I don't believe produced by Trauma. Not made by them. It is garbage. Let's move on to a much better B-movie. One of my very favorite Jaws knockoffs, the awesome Australian Razorback. Out here is where it will find you. God has created it. And L has given it a name. Now, there's a new breed of terror. Razorback. 
Dean Sumler, who shot this film, is a guy who I just have boundless respect for. I think, uh, you know, obviously The Road Warrior is one of his great movies. Dead Calm is a movie of his. He could light something for you for $9. He learned on super low budget, but he also learned how to take advantage of the, the landscape and the world. And one of the reasons that he eventually got his Academy Award for Dances with Wolves is because he has this terrific eye for how people fit into the land. Holy shit, Razorback benefits from him being the guy that's shooting this thing. Gregory Harrison, who was hot on Trapper John, MD, for some reason, the Australian production company wanted an American lead, which is fine, and they went with Gregory Harrison, and he's not terrible, but he sure isn't very interesting, and that's about my biggest complaint. I do think the movie is a little bit familiar, but the things I like about the script by Everett DeRoche, who we've talked about on Road Games, like the Palma, like Tarantino, like Dante, like the guys that we love who are sort of jigsaw puzzle filmmakers who like to put all the stuff they love together again. I, there's a so much going on here that he's kind of riffing on, but also... He does some weird structural stuff. The movie has about three starts. There's three pretty big, long sequences before Gregory Harrison ever shows up. That's a little bit psycho in terms of the structure where you think you're watching one movie and then no, you're not. Then you think you're watching this movie and then no, you're not. And then finally, the movie begins. I do have one other minor complaint. There are two side characters who are meant to be like these scum of the earth jerkwads. The Baker Brothers. Benny and Dicko. They're asked to like giggle and cackle, and that giggling gets less villainous and more annoying. The He's... director is uh, Russell Mulcahy, yep. who would go on to direct Highlander, uh, Resident Evil Extinction, somebody who's done genre most of his career and knows how to do so. Not all his movies are good, but this is a decent genre director. He knows what he's doing. I think if this had been even two years earlier, because of Mad Max, because of the other Australian films that had made money in the U.S., this probably would have had a bigger release. I rented this via the Warner Brothers clamshell. This is that beginning where that decision was starting to get made. Do we support it in theaters or do we just barely release it and then put it out on home video? We're going to have a lot of movies we talk about by the end of this decade where some movies aren't going to be on the show because they never played theaters. Others will make it, but they just Barely played theaters, and it's a game that the studios played. Drew, off the top of your head, although this might be a good fodder for a bonus episode, what are the best Jaws knockoffs? I'm really fond of Dark Age. Alligator I love, and I think Dark Age is one of the ones people don't know that I would say, and I I don't know if we're going to get to it or not. I don't even know if it came out in theaters in the U.S., but Piranha I like a lot, Uh, and of course, like Placid. Giant alligators tend to work really well. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of other good shark movies, though. I do wish the pig was better in this. There's a couple of hero shots where you're like, all right, it's a pretty good creature they built there. And then you could tell a lot of times they're hiding it in shadows and cutting around it because maybe in broad daylight doesn't look so great. It is frenetic. There is some really cool transitions. I I like this movie a lot. I I don't love it. I don't think it's a classic. But Drew, you and I are both huge fans of Larry Cohen. And now we get to two Larry Cohen films released in the same month, neither of which I had seen before. Let us start with a little film called Perfect Strangers. I thought of myself as a pretty big Larry Cohen fan, and I still think of myself as a big Larry Cohen fan. But, man, I had not heard of these two. I didn't know either of these movies. And it... I definitely knew the titles, and I think I remember the VHS for both, but they just, like, when we were younger, obviously our Larry Cohen went to straight horror and monster movies, 
Perfect Strangers is about a very little boy who witnesses a murder and the hitman notices it. And then he starts to romance the little boy's mom. It's just so dull and drab. The only thing of any interest here, Anne Magnuson pops up in this movie. Not just Anne Magnuson. The female lead in this movie is Anne Carlyle from Liquid Sky. And this is it. This is the only other thing I really know her from. Her performance in this movie is just odd. She plays it like somebody who has little connection to like a real mom. It's just an odd performance. Yeah, uh, Larry Cohen cast a similarly uh, unique uh, actress in his other film, Special Effects. This is Christopher Neville. Okay, cut. He's famous for directing big-budget movies. But the movies he makes at home are a lot more interesting. This is Mary Jean. She's dying to be a movie star. Chris Neville is about to make Mary Jean's dream come true. (laughs) Special effects only death is for real from New Line Cinema. And this one I got really excited by because I love Zoe Lund from Ms. 45. Special effects, I will say, is livelier than Perfect Strangers. Special effects feels more like a movie. Yeah, Eric Um, Bogosian plays a very obnoxious film director who kills a woman and then makes a movie about it with the help of her abusive widower. Who doesn't realize why he's involved in making a movie about her. It's funny that we just did Body Double because I think there's some overlap in in what they're trying to do here. I think they are both calling back to Vertigo and Rear Window and that kind of twisty, turny, specifically Hitchcock plot. But as much as I love Cohen as a screenwriter, man, this one gets away from him. He has no idea how to make this thing land. Perfect Strangers special effects far from the best Larry Cohen. But, you know, if you're a completist, you could do worse, right? You could. I'd say of the two special effects is the one that's worth your time. But I'm not entirely sure I even think that's the case. Now we move over to a film from an actor I have very strong feelings about. Drew, let's discuss Chuck Norris in Missing in Action. Vietnam, 1984. Chuck Norris is James Brad. Decorated war hero. Ex-prisoner of war. An American on a mission. One man who couldn't forget the Americans that were left behind. Chuck Norris, missing in action. It's one thing when you rip a movie off, but James Cameron, who we talked about last month, had become very hot very quickly. People in town knew that there was something going on, and there were other deals that had already been made with James Cameron, even before the Terminator was in theaters. One of those deals was he was hired to write a draft of Rambo First Blood Part Two. James Cameron had met with Sylvester Stallone. They had hit it off. Cameron was the guy that cracked that story and wrote that script, and that script became immediately a big deal in town. It's the script that got him the deal writing Aliens. It's the script that broke the rest of his career, and everybody read that thing. Drew, how did Chuck Norris get his film out months before? Because they read that script, and they immediately put two films into production. Not just one, but two films that they wanted both of them out before Rambo. They wanted to not just steal from him, but roadblock them. It was a crazy power move. They that Drew is referring to. 
our friends over at the Cannon Group. This happened to Cameron for the rest of his career. We're going to see it again in 1989 when before he even got the Abyss in theaters, people were ripping it off. How did they get away with this without being sued out of the sky? I, I really don't understand how releasing your film in theaters first automatically makes you safe. Deservedly, there were a lot of hurt feelings. Um, this was a case where I think if Cannon had been smart, what Cannon would have done is tried to make James Cameron their guy. Because if they had hired Cameron to make a whole shitload of action movies for them, they could have had a terrific late 80s. Um, instead, they pissed him off. If they had just waited, then missing an action would have made double its money because people would have been hungry for, oh, it's just like Rambo. Let's go see missing an action. But by yeah. putting it out first, I think they actually shot themselves in the foot. They took a lot of money out of their pockets that way. This is the lunkheaded dumb, dumb version of that movie. Oh, oh, and this is the lunkheaded version. Well, well, we'll have that conversation when we get there. This is so politically naive and weirdly childlike in its view of the world. And good point. It's a coloring book version of the. Video. Yeah. Considering how close we still were to Vietnam and how this was a real conversation conversation that was still going on and how Chuck Norris actually has family connections that he has talked about. It is bizarre how fantasy land the movie is. If this came to a court case and they said, you ripped off our film that's not even out yet, the, the producers of Missing in Action could have pointed to a film called Uncommon Valor and going, no, no, we ripped off that movie like you yeah. did. Here's the thing that you can look at as the fingerprint that I think really gives it away. Rambo has the, the idea is you're going in as an advisor. You're simply going to look and take photos and come back. You cannot engage. That scene is in this movie. That dialogue is in this movie. They say the same thing to Chuck Norris. We're going to go in. You can only look. You cannot engage. I wonder There's, how many uh, yeah. people who love 80s movies would like dig back and watch Missing in Action and go, Oh, this clearly came out six months after Rambo. I always assumed that. And it was only as we were watching and getting ready to do this episode that I started talking to people who worked in L.A. at the time and talked about that script and talked about the fact that specifically Cannon was trying to get James Cameron on board as a filmmaker. And they read this script and turned around and hired Joe Zito to go rip it off. It's funny because I was wigging out when I looked at the release window between Breakin and Breakin 2, I was like, that's got to be the fastest anybody's ever pumped a sequel out. Nope. Uh, this thing is going to have a sequel out before we can catch our breath. And it's a prequel that was actually supposed to be the first film. This was the movie that they realized, okay, we're going to put out first because we want to make sure we have this in theaters before Rambo. We cannot take any chances. There is no way we are going to come out second because we will get our asses handed to us. So they reversed the order, made this the first film, and in doing so, really screwed Stallone. So I think it's one of the more watchable uh, Chuck Norris movies. It does move forward pretty quickly. A lot of his movies kind of don't. And Drew, this movie has an asset that no other Chuck Norris movie has, and a lot of movies from this year do. M. Emmett Walsh as the guy who is uh, – uh, enlisted by Chuck to boat him. And at first he's, I'll get you the boat, but I'm not coming. And then it's, I'll, I'll come, but I'm not getting out of the boat. Then it's, I'll get out of the boat, but I'm not killing anybody. Then it's, I'll kill him, but I'm not eating them. Without him, if you had a flatter actor in that sidekick role, I'd probably hate this movie. But uh, as now, I'd call it a passable Chuck Norris film. So let's go from a movie that was a clear ripoff of another movie to a movie that has been ripped off so many times, I don't think we could even count them if we tried. Scott, you must have strong feelings about Silent Night, Deadly Night. 
was the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. through Halloween. Now try and survive Christmas. Silent night. Deadly night. The film itself is only nominally interesting. What, what happened with this movie is it had a poster and the poster was the, a chimney and it was you could see Santa climbing down the chimney and his one hand that was still outside the chimney had an axe. And there were TV commercials that showed Santa Claus <laughs> carrying weapons. And I think that if those two things hadn't been there, you would not have had quite as much controversy. But parents groups and religious groups flipped out. It was on the nightly news for like, I don't know, a week. My parents laid the fucking law down. You are not seeing Silent Night, Deadly Night. Do not ask us. You are not seeing it. And if we find out you've seen it, you will be in trouble. I'm willing to bet that that controversy Help the film make about double what it would have. All right. Little boy uh, is involved in a trauma involving his parents getting murdered by a dude in a Santa suit. So he grows up in an orphanage with a Batman is what it is. Yeah. And so he grows up in an orphanage with uh, terrible, terrible nuns and a Santa twitch. It is a very naughty movie. And a very goofy movie. I can't take it. It's for a movie for a movie that's supposedly this controversial and and scarring and terrible. I get it. What they were upset about really is not the movie. They were just upset that little kids might see the poster with Santa's arm and an axe. And you know what, man? Not only am I Jewish, so I don't really give a crap about Santa Claus. I don't have children. I think they had a fair point. I do. That's not if I had a six year old kid, I would be fucking livid. That would not be. That's not cool. But it was the notion of it being the front and center in the advertising that I think got people mad. The movie itself, it goes so far out of its way to explain every step of Billy's psychosis. They want to make sure that by the time he picks an axe up and starts killing people dressed as Santa Claus, you know exactly why he's doing it to the point where it's like, all right, already. I'll accept your premise. He's nuts. He's Santa. He is a thing. Fine. Just start killing people already. It's like apologizing before you tell a dirty joke. Just as a basic slasher film, it's cheap. It's goofy. It has a few moments. So so there is some craftsmanship here, and it's better than all of its sequels, I think. Garbage day! Huh? No! (laughs) But... Eh, it's just, you know, if it wasn't for the controversy, it would be entirely forgettable. It's what exploitation films are supposed to be. And as such, it's fine. It does its job. It's not good enough to have made people that crazy, nor is it scary or wild enough to have been that upsetting. But having been there when it happened, I get what the protest was. And I think they were very sharp about it. They were very canny about once the protest began, then writing out the notoriety on home video and home video is probably where they were going to do most of their business in the first place. Every year it would end up on a stack of stuff. People would rent. Now, Drew, let us move on to without question. One of the best films of the year, Harry Dean Stanton in Paris, Texas. When I first saw you this time at Waltz, I was hoping to show you, I was your father. You showed me I was. I knew these people 
They were in love with each other. He was kind of raggedy and wild. And she was very beautiful, you know? And he, he loved her more than he ever felt possible. Harry Dean Stanton, Nastasia Kinski, Dean Stockwell, Aurore Clément, and introducing Hunter Carson. Paris, Texas. Jesus, that's a movie. I love everything about this film wholeheartedly. There's a reason that this was the thing that changed everything for him. He went from a sort of working character actor who a lot of directors loved and knew, and, and certainly he worked a lot, to a guy who, for the rest of his life, never went without work. And it's because of this performance. It's a movie that could have only been made with this cast, by this filmmaker, at this moment, this way. There's no alternate versions of Paris, Texas. Just thinking that is unique. It is not a compromised vision. It is a strange little story. But we saw it last episode with Jim Jarmusch. In the 80s, these are the people who are going, I don't want the conventional structure. I don't want the big action beats or the big comedy beats. I want small, personal, weird even. I'm fascinated by good kid performances. And we've talked here before about directors who are very good at getting strong child performances. And this performance by Hunter Carson in this film, he is amazing. And Harry Dean is so good with him and so natural with him. This whole movie spun out of rehearsals and conversations with the actors and improvisations. And it was sort of built by Sam Shepard and Vim Vendors as they went and it all feels so natural and organic and lived in. And dude, it has stuff that like, this is a movie about a man who just wanders out of the desert. He eventually gets in contact with his brother who hasn't seen him in four years. And Vim vendors and his writers know we want the answer. Why yep. was he out in the middle of the desert? And why wasn't he talking? Where was he? Yeah. Why is he remained silent for the first half of the film? Why aren't they angrier at him? You know, like what is the whole backstory here? And they know that you want this, but they're like, yeah, we'll get to that. But we have other stuff. And boy, it pays off. Uh, Natasha Kinski plays his uh, his former wife. And this is the best thing she's ever done on film. She's remarkable in this. It's heartbreaking that it didn't do for her the same thing it did for Harry Dean, because I think it only works because of the both of them. They, It's really just two people. And if either of them isn't carrying their weight in those scenes, those scenes don't work. It is very wise in the ideas that it presents about forgiveness and about the things we do to ourselves when we are unhappy. When you mess up, how sometimes, you know, you think everyone hates me. And you know what? Nine times out of 10, you're the one who is the most angry at you. You are. It's very easy to judge the end of a marriage. And there's a lot of people who have, oh, divorce is terrible. Nobody should ever get divorced. Every marriage ends differently. Every marriage breaks in its own way. It is so specific and so beautifully nuanced. And between the two of them, the hurt is so real and so raw as they start to peel it back and talk about it. And and man, it, it just breaks my heart. And you want both of them to figure out some sort of detente for that kid. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. Beautiful movie, too. Um, this is actually coming out in theaters again. There's a giant restoration. They've just done a big 4K print of it, and uh, it's going to be playing theaters soon. Robbie Mueller's photography is freaking amazing in this, and the Rye Coder score is terrific. It is a big screen experience. See it in a theater. 
It is very special, and I envy you the experience you're going to have. Yeah, like I said, I had only seen bits and pieces. I knew it was highly regarded, and I knew I'd like it uh, sitting down and watching the entire epic in one sitting. That was my first time. And Mm. that was also true, Drew, of our next film, The Killing Fields. Why didn't you get him out when you had the chance? You had no right to keep him here. Stephen Schaefer of Us Magazine calls it one of the year's best movies. A stirring true story that captures human drama with true compassion. I'm very pleased to accept this on behalf of Dith Prime and myself. It bothers me that you let Pran stay in Cambodia because you wanted to win that award. Nobody gets to go in there. If I thought I could, I would. The Killing Fields. I knew I had to see this film. And I was not ready for it, and it fucked me up in theaters, man. I found this really harrowing, and it shook me. And watching it again now, there's a reason for that. It's a really harrowing movie. It's it's a really intense experience. You know, Drew. A lot of times we like to talk about like uh, good directors and how like their last two or three films are well beneath them, and they usually deserved much, much better. That's kind of the case here. You mean uh, Roland Jaffe, director of Captivity? Yeah. Wow. What happened there? This is a story about a journalist who is in Cambodia as there is an uprising. The Khmer Rouge, I believe it said, uh, they are taking over the government and it would lead to a horrible, horrible genocide. And Sam Waterston in a fucking amazing performance as a journalist who stays behind with his guide slash friend slash translator. Uh, as played by Hang S. Noor. It's about politics and war and, and violence. But the longer it goes on, you realize it's like a love story between two friends. And it's about the idea of not losing faith on both sides of an equation. I also think there's a tendency in these movies, and this movie really nimbly avoids it, to make the white guy the entire center of the movie. And certainly Sidney Schoenberg is a major part of this film, and his life back in the U.S. is a major part of the movie. But they never abandon Prawn. They keep coming back to him, and it's really weighted properly. They let him go. The yeah. first 90 minutes or so is the movie about the two of them together. Yes. Then they're separated. Then a, so a small portion of the movie follows Sam Waterston. Then Hang Nor's journey back to civilization and life. And that section of the film is probably what fuck drew up when he was a kid. It is yeah. harrowing, horrifying, fascinating, because I didn't know any of it. It's devastating. The casual nature of how thin the line is between life and death in this world. And they make it very clear that trying to survive, trying to to scrape any dignity or extra bit of life out of what he's been dealt could easily get Prawn killed. And imagine asking this man who had no acting experience, who had lived through this, to reenact it in a film that looks like real life. I mean, there are some moments yeah. on the quote-unquote killing fields that are as horrifying as anything you'll ever see. And look, Roland Jaffe at this point was coming out of a, sort of a British television background, and there's something kind of documentary about a lot of British TV, and I think that training benefits him well here. We've talked already about Places in the Heart and about the uh, performance in that by John Malkovich was Oscar-nominated. I think it should have been for this film because he's great here. And I still think Hang should have won, but I think Malkovich gives a phenomenal performance as a photographer who lives through part of the experience with Schomburg and later becomes sort of a prickly reminder of his failures that just won't go away or let him off a hook. 
Malkovich is phenomenal in this. He goes from like one of the gang to very likable to very caustic to very judgmental. And you buy like every facet. Sam Waterston has just in his face and his cadence, the way he speaks, a kindness. He, he reminds me of like Mr. Rogers in some ways. My God, he is just a raw wound, just like Hang S. Nor. The, the two of them are so connected and so alive and so real in their performance together that the final moments in this movie, if they don't, if they don't really get inside you and punch a hole in you, man, we, we get very different things out of films. This is very real. Uh, this was nominated for seven Oscars. It won for Best Supporting Actor, Hang S. Noor, and he had never been in a film before. Uh, Chris Mangus, Mangus won for Best Cinematography, and Jim Clark won for Best Editing. It was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, probably should have won, uh, Best Actor, Sam Waterston, Best Director, Roland Jaffe, and Best Picture, Producer David Putnam, who, is, who, by all accounts, this was his baby. He really wanted to make this film. Let us move on to something a little bit lighter. Look, <laughs> up in the sky, it's a girl. It's a girl. It's Supergirl. From the producers of Superman, Alexander Solkind presents Supergirl. Like Superman. He's my cousin. Whoa. Supergirl on a secret mission to save her world. You've had your fun, Selena. The game is finished. Starring Faye Dunaway, Peter O'Toole, and Helen Slater as Supergirl. Rated PG. I'm going to say this right now on the record. This film is considerably better than Superman 3 and Superman 4. Wow. I don't know how you quantify that. I really don't. I'm baffled by anybody who has anything good to say. I'll start right there. I'm baffled. If I'm writing a review and I'm not, you know, being jocular, Scott Weinberg on my own podcast. I'm not being jocular either. I'm serious. I don't think there's one good thing about this movie. Peter O'Toole and Faye Dunaway in this film are more entertaining than anything in Superman 3 or 4. I'm embarrassed for Peter O'Toole. He's drunk and he should not be in front of a camera. This is embarrassing. All right. What is Supergirl about? In a place that I don't understand what it is or where it is. There are people that somehow know everything about Superman and Earth and his adventures on Earth. And one of them gets shot in a bubble into outer space because another one throws a magic ball through a wall because he's drunk. And then she arrives in earth and somehow looks like him. And then there's a witch. And then the witch has a female Otis and witch and lady Otis try to cast a love spell. And somehow she ends up living with Lois Lane's little sister because that would happen. These are things that happen in the comic books. No, not like that. I, and even if that's true, I no. It makes zero sense. And it not only makes zero sense, it doesn't even try to make sense. Things just happen. The Salkinds had rights to Supergirl because they had optioned the rights to Superman. Why wouldn't you put her in one of the super movies and then this movie makes more sense? They didn't really produce this thing. Their hands are barely on this. And that's one of the weird parts of it is I don't totally get what happened behind the scenes that – Ilya went off to make this, and I guess Alexander was like, listen, here's the thing. Ilya really likes to hurt small animals, and we just got to give him something to do. Otherwise, the shit's going to die. So let's just give him this, and he'll go do that. And so this was the small animal he tortured for a year with Supergirl. I hate everything about this. I hate her. It's not her fault. It's not her fault. But what is she playing? 
Supergirl. What? What? What is she? Tell me where she comes from. Tell me what they're in at the beginning. Tell me what the Omega Hedron is. Oh, I can't do that. Tell me how there are witches. It's nonsense start to finish, and it's awful start to finish. Do you know that Demi Moore almost got this role? I did not, and she dodged a fucking bullet. What about Jerry Goldsmith's score? What about that? Nope. No. Nope. You hate this movie so much you can't even appreciate some Goldsmith. <laughs> but but for what? What is it scoring? It, there's music. Music happens. Scott, please describe to me the scene where she fights an invisible dragon for a half an hour. It's better than the scene where Superman fights himself. Wow. Is it? Is it really? How? You know what the connective <laughs> tissue is between these two movies? Mark McClure. Why does she have? Why is her? Why is Lois Lane's little sister the girl from Fame? And why does she end up living in a boarding school with? What about Hart Boxer? <laughs> why? Okay, tell me, tell me what happens in the scene where he gets a love spell cast on him and ends up in a bulldozer. Please tell me about that scene because it makes a lot of sense. Does this movie make more or less sense than uh, Ryan Reynolds' movie Green Lantern? <laughs> way less. Way less. Green Lantern's a terrible movie, but at least Green Lantern doesn't feel like they threw pages on a floor. It is terrible, but it is not unwatchable. I think Helen Slater is absolutely adorable and hung out to dry. And I watch this movie, and it feels like I, I want somebody to say cut and let her go again. I just empathize with her so much in this movie. She's just the producers attempted and failed to get the services of Richard Lester. If that doesn't say it all. <laughs> who we know from what had he done prior? I know his uh, somewhere in time. That's another reason that this movie makes me so mad. Oh, we love talking about Juno's work because he's yeah. just peripherally around a lot of big movies. And after this, he was still hooking with the Salkinds, and he did Santa Claus the movie. Oh, we're not even going to start. We're not even going to start. We're not even going to start on Santa Claus the movie. Uh, <laughs> oh, all right. I don't think we should cover it at all next year. <laughs> not yet. I do. I do agree. This is not a good film. It's very cheap, and and it's like every major problem with this movie could have been addressed and fixed if they weren't cheap. Almost everything in this film seems rushed and truncated and choppy. And it all comes down to make it cheaper, make it cheaper. Your bad guy is a witch that gets a magic space ball and then <laughs> and uses it to cast a love spell. What the fuck are you talking about? You, you could say it's broad and stupid and silly, but on another way to say it is they're like embracing some of the silliness of the super characters in the super comics. Adam. Oh, Bobby. Bobby. <laughs> Peanut gallery comments from Bobby on Skype says price has nothing to do with why this movie sucks. <laughs> hey, you know how we can prove that? Let's talk about this next film, which was made for almost nothing. Night of the Comet. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. What would you do? The burden of civilization is on us. Fiction, isn't it? The legal drinking age is now 10, but... You will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. The doors are open! The night the teenagers ruled the world. Night of the Comet. Rated PG-13. Now, here's an interesting flip. 
I remember as a kid, you know, being very excited for this one. And I don't remember if I liked it or not. It literally did not leave much of an impression. I think if I had been three years older and, and like around their age or slightly older, I would have been a lot more into Night of the Comet. Wait, we did the intro already, didn't we? <laughs> just, please, please, please leave that. I really like how you said that. That was embarrassing. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm punchy, but that was good. Night of the Comet is a uh, very likable, low budget second feature from writer director Tom Eberhardt after the slightly interesting but mostly dry Soul Survivor, which we covered. This mm-hmm. one ain't dry. This uh, is about two young women, as played by Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney, who are both great individually and have a really good chemistry as sisters together. They deal with random shit after the end of the world. <laughs> that's, that's basically it, yeah. A comet goes overhead, and anybody who uh, was like inside of a steel case of some case... Uh, as long as you were uh, in, some, in some way shielded by a certain element, then yeah, you survived it. Everybody else, red dust or zombies. For a little while, they think they're the only two left. <laughs> And then slowly it becomes clear that there are, of course, other survivors. And then they have to deal with, Drew, tell me if I forget any of the antagonists here. Horny biker dudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, pissed off mall security guards. Yes. Uh, zombies that are kind of human, but not. Yeah. Oh, oh, wait, a bunch of government sneaks who uh, yep. know something about the apocalypse and want to track the girls down. Yep. Uh, and I think it's like there's one or two other groups that are after these girls. I want to love it unreservedly, but man, it really feels like somebody at the last minute just went, pull this scene out and pull this scene out. It really starts to feel very jumbled. And while it has a lot of energy and I love the leads and you're just curious to see what's going to happen next in this crazy little movie, I can't love it because it's just so random. The things I love about it, I love a lot. It's a good little movie that really tries its ass off. And this was a very little film. This thing cost almost nothing. And yet there are images in this movie that have stuck with me since 1984. Some of them are very simple tricks. They just block traffic off in Los Angeles at a certain time in the morning and manage to get some shots where it looks empty. But holy shit, it looks empty. And they do a great job of selling that. My favorite stuff in the film is the stuff that's just between the sisters. And in particular, I like that Catherine Mary Stewart's a little bit older and she is, we talk about this word more now than we ever did then, but she has agency. She ends up with somebody, but even then, I get the feeling he's along for her ride. And that is a very subtle thing, but important in an 80s film. The supporting cast is small, but but powerful. You have uh, uh, the awesome Jeffrey Lewis and Marion mm-hmm. Waranov as two yep. of the scientists. Uh, that this, this B-plot, they make it feel amusing because they're funny actors. That's the stuff that to me, it's like I said, I love the sister stuff. I'm less in love with the military-based stuff, but it's fine. There's a big gun battle between the girls and a bunch of guys who are literally just shooting at these two young women with machine guns for no real reason. And I don't think they're zombies. They're just a gang. Yeah, they're just dudes. I would like more of that. I frankly wanted the movie that I thought was just them, the two girls, thinking they were at the alone at the end of the world. And they're, they're not totally alone, but it's just them. I think this is a, definitely a fun movie. And despite its choppiness, I, I definitely would recommend it to genre fans. Yep. One thing that really bugged me during the, of course, requisite let's all dress up in new clothes montage, 
they play Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which is an awesome 80s song. However, it's a cover. This was cheap, man. And that's that's the other thing is for all of its flaws, I give it a lot of credit because I know this thing was shot in a sprint and they had no time and no money. And I think they push it about as far as they could have on what they had. It's pretty inventive. Kudos, Night of the Comet. And I hope we turn a few people on to this likable little movie. And Drew, yes. we are going to end this epic episode. Yes, we are. With one of the finest horror films of the entire decade, a film that spawned countless sequels, a few of them even good. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nightmare on Elm Street. Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, rated R. This is the movie that I saw the weekend that Silent Night, Deadly Night opened. I had a choice of seeing one or the other, and this is the one that I saw, and I regret nothing. It still sticks in my mind as one of the scariest theatrical experiences I've ever had. I saw it with my friend. We saw it in the middle of the day, and we snuck in. It was the first showing. Nobody was there. It was too early in the day. It was empty. We had to sit in an empty theater And we had to sit in the darkest corner so the usher wouldn't see us. And every time the door opened, we would freak out. And then the movie was the movie. That scared the living shit out of me, man. I still, to this day, remember having that little panicky feeling when the arm stretch moment. In the early, early moments in the film, the arms stretch out real long. That moment got me. I think in general, it is the purest film that Wes ever made. He's very stripped down at his best, and and Wes makes movies that feel like they are just sort of white-hot blasts of nightmare. But the reason I think this one works so well is Freddy is the perfect movie villain. And the shape of this movie is so brilliant. The way he uses dreams. Everybody uses dreams. Dreams are one of the most common devices in horror films. We already on this episode mentioned American Werewolf in London, which has some of the greatest nightmare jump scares of all time. And it, it's certainly not a brand new thing to set elements of a movie inside of a nightmare or to have a nightmare happen. But to have the nightmare be the land that you get lost in. Make people afraid of going to bed like Jaws <sighs> made people afraid yes. of the water. Like, yes. like you're terrified or you're stressed or you're miserable. Sleep is a respite. Sleep is like, thank you for sleep. Yeah. It's, a, it's a blissful uh, retreat. And now this brilliant horror writer says, no, no, sleep is exactly where you're in trouble. <laughs> and I think Freddie is instantly iconic. Man, The fr- you don't even need to see all of him. The opening credits of this film with him putting the glove together, made me really fucking nervous the first time I saw it in the theater. It's also, a, I think, a brilliant use of the idea that the parents' sins are visited on the children. That this is all about the parents did something awful, your children are paying the price, you don't even really know what's going on, you don't understand what you're losing or why, it's just happening under your nose and you're not you don't even believe them that it's happening. That's great. This was a stripped down, badass, clever, fast paced, well cast. The cast in this movie, Drew. I mean, Robert Englund is uh, amazing in this, but yeah, Heather Langenkamp, Ronnie Blakely, John Saxon, Johnny Depp. 
Amanda Wiss, our, our good friend Amanda Wiss is great in this. A lot of times in slasher films, and I guarantee you remember this from being a kid, Drew, you'd get a scary or a gory or a funny or a sexy bit, and then it was almost like a given that you'd have to wait 10 minutes for like plot and, yeah. and dialogue to get out of the way. Yeah. Well, guess what? In Nightmare on Elm Street, all the plot and all the dialogue is really fascinating. And it's important to remember contextually – the Terminator had just landed a month before this in theaters. I lost my mind for The Terminator. I could not get enough of that movie. That movie had fought tooth and nail to get an R rating. This movie had to fight tooth and nail to get an R rating. It felt like a shift was happening where the studios didn't know how to do this stuff. And they were getting their asses handed to them by the indies. You know, there's a reason that for years New Line was called the house that Freddie built. And this thing was supposed to be small. It was not meant to be this giant thing and it turned into a phenomenon the phenomenon this franchise felt bigger in the 80s while it was happening than halloween did it really did feel like a big deal as it started to evolve freddie was instantly an icon and my we'll talk about the sequels as we get to the sequels i prefer just to think about nightmare on elm street as a movie that stands by itself the freddie in that movie I think is one of the greatest film villains of all time. Absolutely. Okay. And there's this longstanding debate on whether he was written to be a child killer or a child molester. Yeah. They say the word child killer. They are very careful not to say the other, but uh, you know, he's an awful despicable monster. Whether it's one or the other, it's not just that he's a monster from beyond the grave. It's when he was alive, he was also a child predator. So But that goes back to the grim fairy tales. He's Hansel and Gretel. Children were always in danger in the fairy tales. He is the thing at the center of the forest that will kill you. And Wes understood that we had not had a great one of those in a while, that Jason's a thing that chases you. I don't think Jason and Michael had any dimension beyond they they chased you around. And psychologically, they're scary in the fact of, Hey, if all of a sudden a stranger was chasing me. Blunt force scary. Yeah, but but Nightmare on Elm Street taps into shit that are not so easily explainable. Like, you know. <laughs> oh, God. And the images and the images in the film. One of the great images of the 80s is Amanda Wiss in the hall where her legs go up and she drags in the bag out of the hall. That's an amazing shot. And it's so simple. And, of course, Freddie pushing out of the wall. Very simple effect, but immediately iconic. The image of it. So you could talk for an hour about just the image of his claw coming yeah. out from between her legs in the bathtub. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a reason that that film got under our skin and that we needed to go back to it. And I think one of the reasons the franchise was so big, and I'll, I'll end with this, is because Freddy scared the shit out of us so badly in the first film that we needed to defang him. We needed to do what Heather Langenkamp does by the end of the film, which is turn your back on him. You're not afraid of him. He has no power anymore. It took us four or five films for Freddy to not really have any juice. And I think we did not defang Freddy Krueger. Lazy producers defanged him and made him silly because that was easier to explain to parents than a a scary child predator. We'll get into that later. I absolutely love this. It is one of the best horror films of the decade without question. If you haven't seen it, how dare you listen to our podcast? (laughs) I am Weinberg out. So next time, it's the most wonderful time 
1984. Uh, we've got big sci-fi turkeys and David Lean. We've got Blake Edwards reunited with the Star of Ten, which I'm sure means magic is in the offing. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola is going to lay a big expensive egg. Sissy Spacek decides to get into the farming sweepstakes. And yes, we are finally going to take a trip to the West Coast with the one and only Axel F. We will be doing the Neutron Dance right back here in two weeks for December of 1984. <laughs> 